Showtime. Welcome to Night Fright. It's Brent Holland. The JFK conspiracy is the biggest conspiracy in history. After the assassination, President Kennedy's body was flown on board Air Force One from Dallas to Bethesda for an autopsy. But all the autopsy notes were purposely burned by one of the autopsy doctors. What was so explosive to the nation that first, second draft notes had to be destroyed? And wounds to the president when unexamined or physically distorted? Why were untrained admirals and generals barking orders at the Bethesda trained autopsy doctors? They were telling them what to examine and what not to. What went on in that autopsy chamber? This evening, JFK author and researcher William Law is here. He's interviewed the actual autopsy staff that was present that awful night in November. And what they have revealed to him is shattering. For the first time, we'll descend into the bowels of Bethesda Hospital. We'll be taken behind the large steel doors into the damp and cold morgue. And through the eyes and the words of the autopsy staff, we will observe the president's autopsy from right beside the table that held the body of the fallen president. Tonight on Night Fright, JFK autopsy researcher William Law is here. And, by the way, all the rumors you have ever heard about the assassination are true. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. Now your host, Brent Holland. Good evening. I'm pleased to welcome to Night Fright for the very first time, JFK author and researcher William Law. Hi, William. Welcome to the show. Hello, Brent. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Good to be with you. William, I was just wondering, just to start us off, I was wondering if you can give us a brief background of what got you interested in the JFK assassination and, in particular, the autopsy aspects of it. Well, in the toward the end of the 1980s, I was in a bookstore, uh, and I'd always been interested in the JFK assassination on and off reading books and watching the occasional documentary, but I was in a bookstore and I stumbled upon a book by uh, a man named David S. Lifton called Best Evidence. And in that book, there were a series of autopsy photographs. I'd never seen them before of uh, Kennedy uh, in the autopsy room. And I stood there transfixed, just staring at these things. And I took it home and I read it. And it, it just grabbed me so much that I started reading everything I could lay my hands on over the years. And after that, I just uh, became so uh, enthralled with it that I started actually calling up witnesses that had been there. And uh, that's how it all started. Just like that. Hmm. Like that. William, you've got a new book out, and it's called In the Eye of History, Evidence of the JFK Autopsy. 
I was just wondering, can you tell us where people can get a hold of that? You can you can get this uh, through most major bookstores. Uh, you can go to jfklancer.com and order it. Uh, they're the publishers. Okay. It's been out a few years now, so it's it's not exactly new, but um, I've gotten people have received it well. Okay. Do you have your own website, William? But okay. you can reach me through JFKLancer. JFKLancer.com. Actually, they've been instrumental in helping me get guests for this series of shows I've done on the JFK assassination, and I have to give kudos to them. They've helped out quite a bit. Also, folks, I checked out chapters on The King's Way, and you can pick up William's book there. That won't be a problem at all. Just to let you know, uh, William Chapters is our version of Canadian version of Barnes & Noble. I see. It's a big conglomerate right across the country. I was wondering, maybe you could just tell our audience, just run us through the autopsy, your version of the autopsy, from the time JFK is placed on Air Force One in Dallas, right on through to the end of the autopsy, just to give a quick overview. Well, the wounds in Dallas are different than what was seen from the wounds in Bethesda Hospital where the autopsy was done. The uh, wound... Kennedy was, was apparently shot in the back. Uh, there may have been a shot to the throat. You know the single bullet theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly the bullet goes in Kennedy's back, comes up out of his throat, hits Governor Con- comes out Governor Conley's right chest under the nipple, hits him in the right wrist, and then uh, hits him in the leg uh, where the bullet supposedly falls out on a stretcher. So that's seven wounds in two men. Mm-hmm. Okay, The wound in Kennedy's uh, throat uh, was when seen by a nurse, Margaret Hinchcliffe, was about as round and small as the end of your little finger. But by the time the body reaches Dallas, it's about it's a big, open, ugly gash to Pollock and the others. The wound ahead was uh, in the back of the head where he was hit was uh, about the size of an orange. And when it reaches Bethesda, the wound in the head now encompasses part of the side, the top, and the back. So it was it was four to six times larger than what was seen in Dallas. So the wounds are different. So th- that's pretty strange. In and of itself, it, it's, in a, and of it's itself. unbelievable. Uh, I asked specifically one of the fellows. The, the thing that's different about this book is um, I just wanted to ask them questions. I've read every kind of book known to man um, about this. And invariably, there's somebody in their book that has a chapter, What Really Happened? Mm-hmm. And then the, the writer will go on to give you his version of what he thinks happened. I didn't want to do that. What I wanted to do was I wanted to have kind of a tabletop talk between the person and myself and just get to ask questions, things that I wanted to know, get it right from the person that had been there. I didn't want to give theories to people. I just wanted to be the conduit for mm-hmm. the information. Yeah, I think you succeeded also in the book because there are some contradictions between witnesses and some discrepancies. I was wondering, can you tell us who the main players were just so we can identify them so when we start talking about them later on, people will know who exactly the players are? Well, the the, the doctors themselves that performed the autopsy, there was James Humes, Commander James Humes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Pierre Fink, who was the only pathologist there. James Boswell. Uh, those were the three main doctors, and then the people that I interviewed were people that helped the doctors. Uh, there was uh, Paul O'Connor and Jim Jenkins, his partner. Uh, there was Floyd Reby, who was a photographer that I did not interview for the book. He declined. Uh, 
there was John Stringer, who was a civilian uh, photographer. He wasn't doing the autopsy, but he was taking pictures. Some of them I managed to get to go on the record. Some I didn't. Mm -hmm. There were two FBI agents there, uh, James Seibert and uh, Francis X. O'Neill, who they were ordered by uh, J. Edgar Hoover to stay with the body uh, when it reached Washington and follow it to Bethesda and then stay with the body and then take whatever evidence was found in the body back to the FBI laboratory. Mm -hmm. Those are the main players. Okay, thank you. Not to mention Dennis David, who gave uh, orders to unload a metal shipping casket at the back of the morgue 20 minutes or so before the official hearse pulls up that supposedly had Kennedy's body. And we shall get into that momentarily and the rest of the anomalies that took place on that night. Can you speculate how you feel the body got off Air Force One so the body alterations could take place? Well, that's, that is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, I can't answer that. Okay, fair uh, enough. All I can fair answer enough. is that when I spoke to Dennis David, uh, he said he gave orders to unload a cheap metal shipping casket at the back of the morgue. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I spoke to Paul O'Connor. Exactly. It was verified by him, too. Yeah. Yes, and he said that they, they did receive the shipping casket. They took the lid off. Inside the casket was the body of the president. The body was in a body bag. And inside the body bag, the president's body was nude, except for some sheets or towels that were wrapped around the head. Mm-hmm. Where, where this happened, uh, David Lipton, who wrote the, uh, the book Best Evidence. Best Evidence, yeah. Uh, says that he believes that at some time, um, it sounds preposterous, but it, it seems to be one of the only ways that it could have happened was after they loaded the body, uh, in the casket, um, that while everybody else was up in the forward part of the plane, while every, uh, Johnson was being sworn in, that mm -hmm. the body was taken, put into the, uh, cargo hold of the plane, and then while when the plane landed and everybody came off the plane, uh, that it was unloaded from the other side, and we didn't see the body unloaded, and from there, who knows what happened to the body. Uh, I did a small conference with the fellows after I did the book, mm -hmm. uh, before the book came out mm -hmm. in 2002. We gathered in Florida, and some of them speculated there was a there was an animal hospital that was on the ground exactly uh, that was basically set up kind of like uh, the Bethesda morgue, and they mm -hmm. speculated that it could have been done there. I've heard that it wasn't, the, but who knows? I wasn't there. Well, what do you say we dive right into it, and why don't we start off with Paul O'Connor? Okay. How's that? And, you know, how you met Paul, where you interviewed him, how you interviewed him, and uh, the revelations that he brought to the table that are actually uh, very explosive. When I decided that I was going to do this, actually, when I started to do this, um, I had gone to a conference, the Lancer Conference, intending to just go to the conference, hang out with some other people that, that was into this thing, you know, because there are, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the world that want to know more mm -hmm. about what happened to John Kennedy. I'm not alone in this, but out here okay. in Oregon, I seem to be the only one. So I thought, you know, I've got to put this obsession to bed. And, and when I learned that there was a conference that was going to be held in Dallas, I decided to go to it. And I thought, well, I'll go to this thing. I'll, I'll get together with these people, writers, researchers, and the general public that come in. I'll have some discussions. We'll, we'll talk about it. I'll listen to what everybody has to say, and then I'm going to put this thing to bed. 
What year uh, was this, William? This was in, I believe, 1997. Okay, it's just at the end of Okay. I thought, well, I'll just do this, and I'll put this whole thing to bed, and I'll get back to a normal, quote-unquote, life. I'll stop reading books, and I'll stop being obsessed by this case. <laughs> Dallas and Wonderland. <laughs> so, so I went Good to luck. Dallas. I did that thing. Mm-hmm. I met Bill Newman, who was a, a mm-hmm. witness that was the closest to uh, President Kennedy mm-hmm. at the moment of the fatal headshot. He was kind enough to uh, allow me to come out to his office in Mesquite, Texas. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he told me the story of uh, what he saw. And instead of cooling me down, that just lit the fire even hotter. Oh, yeah. And with the conference over, I'm standing in the plaza. It's It's night. I'm standing there looking at the at the street where the president had been hit in the head. Mm-hmm. And before I walked out of that plaza, I was determined that I was going to look into this as far as I could concerning the autopsy because I felt if you could talk to people that were trained medical personnel that, you know, they had their hands on the body, they knew about medicine, they should be able to tell me was there a conspiracy just mm-hmm. by looking, mm-hmm. you know, at the wounds and what they'd found. And so when I walked out of that plaza that night, I went home and started contacting him, and that's how it started. Paul O'Connor, when I called him up, uh, tracked him down. He was very nice to me, a deep baritone voice. Hmm. I, I said, you know, I would, I would really like to, to uh, talk to you about this. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm retired from that. I don't really have much to do with it anymore. I, I've got all my stuff and papers up in a box in my attic, and uh, I just, you know, kept calling him, and it that point he agreed to to do it and he wanted to come here to Prineville where I live and uh, so I flew him out here and uh, it was a it was a wonderful experience he was a wonderful person unpretentious gregarious personality uh, he was the one that really opened up a Pandora's box of researchers because mm-hmm. he's the one that uh, first told the story in 1980 that that uh, the body had been taken out of a metal shipping casket and inside the shipping casket was a body bag and talking about the wounds. So that's how I met O'Connor. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon, and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Now, what was the significance of President Kennedy's body arriving in a metal casket and inside a body bag? Well, of course, the official version is, is that yeah. the, body, the body was in the ambulance that was taken off Air Force One, um, and the ambulance was driven along on a motorcade uh, to Bethesda Naval Hospital. That supposedly had the ornate shipping casket that the body left Dallas in. It, the body left Dallas in a 400-pound display casket uh, wrapped in sheets, uh, with plastic over the inside of the casket to keep uh, blood from seeping onto the mm-hmm. to the satin lining. So um, it's strange that the body would would be said that it that it uh, appeared at the back of uh, the morgue 20 minutes before the official uh, ambulance pulls up. Um, you know, so the, how did the body get into the metal shipping casket? I, I can't answer that. I've tried to pin it down, but I can tell you this. I believe the people that told me that the body showed up in the metal shipping casket. Yeah, so do I. Absolutely. There's no uh, malice or intent to mislead people. 
when they the get trouble their- is is that there's there's no timeline here really you can't follow it minute by minute so we're dealing with pieces of things mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where we 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 have certain things when they started the autopsy and some of the cutting was made and things like that but there's no there's no real timeline that can be pinned down to to a hard cold extent it's relying on people's memories, but nonetheless, yeah. they're qualified people. They were right inside the autopsy and witnessed it. So here we have the two stories. We have the official version, which has the president's body supposedly arriving in this big bronze beam of a casket weighing 400 pounds with uh, the ambulance and the motorcade, with Jackie's in the motorcade, Bobby Kennedy's in the motorcade, and uh, several other dignitaries, along with Dr. Berkeley, who, yes, was Dr. Pre- Berkeley, who was President Kennedy's personal physician. And yet, we have one of the technicians that was involved directly in the autopsy, Paul O'Connor, stating that, no, in fact, the body arrived 20 minutes before that motorcade at Bethesda. They unloaded it at the back. President Kennedy's body was in a casket, just a shipping casket, that he describes, Paul O'Connor describes, as the type of casket that in those days they were shipping the bodies home from Vietnam in. And on top of that, inside this shipping casket was President Kennedy's body inside a body bag. Complete opposite discrepancies. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just mind-blowing. We are speaking with renowned JFK assassination author and investigator, William Law, and we are speaking about his book, In the Eye of History, Disclosure. I'm doing this from memory. Disclosure. Yes, Disclosures in the JFK Assassination Medical Evidence. There we go. Thank you. And the book uh, can be got through Amazon.com right here at Chapters in Sudbury or right across the country. I checked that out last night, and there's no problem. You can get it right there at Chapters. It's a phenomenal book, very well written also, very well researched. And these are the actual words of people that were right there beside the body. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Let's continue. Actually, we're at the bottom of the hour. Do you want to take a break, or do you want to go right through? We can just continue if you'd like. Great, sure. That's terrific. If you want to take a break, even if it's an odd hour or something, just say, I want to take a break. I need a glass of water, whatever. whatever I'm fine. Let's go. Okay. Take us right in. We'll stay in Paul O'Connor's eyes for the time being. Take us right into the autopsy room and Paul O'Connor's own words on how he lifted the body out of the casket. Okay. They... They take the casket into the anteroom. Um, they care. It's a little room off off the morgue. They bring it into the morgue, set it down on the floor. They lift the body. They open the lid. Inside is the body bag. They unzip the body bag. They bring the body out and they put it on the autopsy table. Um, the beginning of an autopsy is not when they do the major cutting. The major, the the start of the autopsy is when they check for scars bruises, contusions, things like that. Um, so they did that, and it took some time. I'm not exactly sure how long. I think the first incision was, if I remember correctly, about 8.15. Um, I remember Paul telling me that, and not only Paul, but Jim Jenkins, his mm-hmm. partner, used almost the exact words. When they took the outside wrappings off of the president's head, they said there was just an audible gasp in the room because the wound to the head was so massive 
Paul said it looked like a bomb had gone off in the inside of his head. Wow. That it was just terrible. Mm. Um, and here's where the controversy comes in. Part of it is that there's not enough already. But <laughs> Paul's, his main job, Paul O'Connor's main job that night always was to uh, take the brain mm. out of the cranium. And, the, and the, the head was so damaged that you didn't need to take what's called the skull cap. I don't know how graphic you want me to be. Oh, sure. Go for, ahead. Fire for me. your listeners. But they take a, they take a, a, a cutting knife and they cut, the, they cut the skin and they basically, you know, pull the, pull the skin. They, they slice it from ear to ear and then they mm. pull your skin off, the face off, and peel it back. And then they, they take a, a, a bone saw and they, and they saw the skull cap off and they take a hammer and a chisel to, to, to work it off. And inside that, then you, you have a thick covering of the brain and they cut into that. And then you take a pair of long handled scissors and go down and snip, uh, snip the blood, the vessels and the tendons and the cords that connect your, your brain to your body. So this is a complicated procedure. And Paul mm-hmm. said that you didn't have to do any of that because there was basically no brain in the cranium when yeah. they got the body. Yeah. Mm. That the, the, the skull was basically empty. Said it, it had a handful, half a handful of macerated tissue. That the scalp was torn and bloody and macerated. It's pretty yeah. descriptive, yeah. Who are some of the people Paul O'Connor says he saw sitting in the autopsy room that night, people that arrived to witness the autopsy. He said, I asked him, you know, this thing took place in, in a, uh, was a teaching morgue. That's right, yeah. And it had a gallery, it had gallery steps, you could go up and sit on the, on the benches there and it, watch what was going on. And I said, well, how many, how many people were in the morgue? And he said it was full. I've had estimates of 30 people more Sometimes they said you couldn't really tell because there were people coming and going, and, and you know they weren't really focused on any of that. Really, they were they had a job to do, which was to help the doctors do what needed to be done. And so each person, each corpsman, was really they had specific jobs, and so each corpsman was really focused on what he was doing. Uh, so, but basically, the morgue was basically full. Um, there were, uh, as I was told. Um, the highest-ranking officials from the, across the nation. Paul O'Connor told me that he saw Curtis LeMay mm. in, sitting in in the gallery, and uh, he had a cigar apparently. And I believe it was Humes that said, "Go tell that fellow to put that out." So he Paul starts toward LeMay, and uh, he didn't know it was LeMay at the time. So he starts toward the guy, and he recognizes it as Curtis LeMay, and he turns around, and he goes back to Humes, and he says, uh, that's Curtis LeMay. And uh, Humes says, uh, you didn't say anything to him, did you? Uh, you know? Yeah. So right from the get-go, um, you know, Humes had to watch his step. Can you tell the folks, uh, the younger folks, who Curtis LeMay is and why that's significant that he was in there? He was part of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. Um so he was he was one of the uh, upper echelon uh, in the military, uh, quite famous in World War II uh, for some of his bombing raids and things like that. Japan, yeah. So what happens next? They've taken the body out. Body is nude. Paul O'Connor is observing the autopsy taking place. And what are some of the anomalies that he mentions in your book? 
Well, of course, the brain being mm-hmm. one of Bes- the biggest. There besides was no the brain. brain to take yeah. Out. So, so the, the doctors, they needed to find, they were supposed to find, there should have been bullet fragments in the body. Mm-hmm. And they weren't finding them as it was going on. They weren't finding it. Uh, they were, normally in an autopsy, you, you do a full autopsy and you, you do what is called the Y incision. And you make the Y incision, peel the, the skin back from the chest and sternum and things, and then you take uh, scissors and you clip the um, ribs away so that the organs are exposed. And then you take the, the organs in the body and you take them out one by one and you inspect them for abnormalities. And then you weigh them, and that's written on a autopsy face sheet that has a, a drawing of a body on it. And you uh, place as close as you can the markings on this face sheet. And so that's what proceeded next. And they weren't finding uh, any uh, they weren't finding any evidence of metal fragments, bullets. This is before um, the autopsy, the, the cutting began. They X-rayed the body to try to locate bullets. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't find any, and and that w- was causing some consternation uh, in the gallery. Big time. Um, John Ebersol, who was uh, a radiologist, mm-hmm. was brought in to do more X-rays uh, when they weren't uh, initially finding anything, um, and they basically, uh, according to these fellows I talked to, did not find any metal fragments. Although, in the X-rays that we have now, there are metal fragments in the uh, scene in the x-rays. Isn't that funny how they which, turn up now? And not which then. brings up another mystery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can get into that later. Absolutely. No problem at all. Now, apparently Dr. Humes stuck his finger in a wound in JFK's back, which was, I would say, about uh, six inches from his collar. and then Five and three quarters inches down from the collar. There you go. Um, and three over, I guess. Yeah, to the right of the spine. Yeah. Uh, now, to have the single bullet theory work, that bullet has to go in the back, come out the throat, um, and hit Conley in the back, um, and then come out his chest, go into his right wrist, and then go into his left leg, which is what they said happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that bullet has some strange things about it, and it came out basically unscathed yeah. from all that action from going through skin and dense bone it came out basically without any markings on it hence the label it's got over the years the magic bullet yes the magic bullet it's 399 according to the warren commission it entered jfk's back headed at a downward angle i think it was 45 degrees and then changed to an upward angle in order to exit from jfk's neck yeah, uh, unbelievable. Well, <laughs> well, well, now this is where it gets interesting because after they took the the organs out of the body, there's what's called the pleural cavity, and it has mm-hmm. a lining. Mm-hmm. And th- this is not from Paul O'Connor, but this is from Jim Jenkins, That's his right. partner. Yeah. He said that he that. saw Humes take a probe, which is a metal sound that they mm-hmm. use to track the bullet or a bullet wound, and he saw the the sound poke into the pleural cavity. But there was no there was no exit for it. There was no hole in that cavity. There was no to 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 have the single bullet theory work. The pleural cavity has to be violated, uh, which means there has to be a hole in the lining to allow the bullet to go up and out the throat. And he said there was none that he could see. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the throat wound. What the doctors in Parkland Hospital who tried to save his life, the emergency doctors right in Dallas, the hospital in Dallas, folks, if you're not familiar, where JFK was taken directly after the shooting, he was still living a little bit. To try and save his life, they took him to a place called Parkland Hospital. Now, from Daly Plaza to Parkland, would be about 5K, 5 kilometers, I guess. All the doctors, bar none, witnessed several things. One of them, they all thought that the wound to JFK's throat was an entry wound, which means there had to be a shot from the front. They also witnessed JFK's back of his head blown out, which means, again, another shot from the front. Now, what's bizarre about this, and William will tell us about this, is what happened in the autopsy. They never even looked at the neck. No, they were told to leave it alone. Yeah, unbelievable. You have to track that to find out which direction, the, you know, where the bullet went, which direction it came from. They were not allowed to dissect the neck wound. They were told to leave it alone. It was a tracheotomy. And that was the end of it. That was the end of it. Yeah. Let me take you to sure, Parkland for a moment. Sure. When when they have the body at Parkland, they put him on the table. They cut away the clothing and they they uh, made uh, a cut in one of his arms and one of his legs to feed in uh, mm-hmm. ring his lactate. Mm-hmm which is just a salt water solution, basically. And they tried life-saving procedures on him. They didn't do any cutting of the head, nothing like that. They did some closed closed heart chest massage to try to get his heart going. Mm -hmm. Um, When they had him on the the cart there, uh, Dr. McClellan, who was one of the first in, said he was standing at the head of the table, and he, he could look at it. He looked at it for like 10, 15 minutes. And how I know this personally is I just met him last week, uh, and he told me this personally, although he's he's had several accounts of this. Uh, but I talked to him about this, and he said he was standing there, and he could see cerebellum, uh, which is in the very back part of your head, and is different in brain tissue uh, as far as tex- texture and appearance goes. Mm-hmm. So he could easily tell that it was cerebellum wow. coming out of the um coming out of the president's head and spilling onto the cart. Uh, but we have pictures and drawings of the president's brain that was done that's in the National Archives, and it shows the cerebellum is undamaged. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And now, here's Dr. McClelland, and you want to talk about an actual person who was there. Dr. McClelland was one of the several doctors that was right in the emergency room in Parkland working on President Kennedy. William Law met him at the Lancer Conference, and this is why it's important if you can get a chance to get down to the Lancer Conference. I'm going to plug Lancer again, www.jfklancer.com, and it's called Lancer because that was the Secret Service code name that was given to JFK. We are speaking with William Law. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM in Sudbury and www.cklu.ca on the Internet. And we are discussing the JFK autopsy. William Law has a great book out called In the Eye of History, Disclosing the JFK Assassination Medical Evidence. The book is available, again, at jfklancer.com and also at chapters here, right on the Kingsway and across the country. Great book. Great, great book. I mean, these are the real guys who are right there inside the autopsy room, and they're giving their own experiences and what they witnessed. Really a, a terrific book. It's a uh, you can just start at the beginning and just go right through it and see how the Warren Commission just manipulated things and left things out purposely to avoid admitting that there was a conspiracy. And one of the things they left out 
which I found out in the book, and I didn't know this. Just for the younger phones, again, the Warren Commission was set up to examine the crime of the murder of President Kennedy, and it was set up by President Johnson in 1964. Kennedy was killed in 63. One of the things they left out of the report were the autopsy photos. Now, how bizarre is that? Just another one of those wild things. Any speculation on that, William? On why they left the autopsy photos out? Yeah. Well, they they said that they you know they wanted to protect the Kennedy family that they didn't want to have these things out there. The the Warren Commission people didn't even really want to look at them. They said out of respect for uh, the Kennedy family. Uh, Earl Warren said that he did see them, and that uh, it, after he saw them, it kept him up for many nights. Uh, he couldn't sleep after seeing them. They were so awful. Do you think but, that's just a crock, or do you think uh, Earl Warren was kind of an honest fellow? I I think. Well, I have no real way of knowing. I'm sure it upset him a lot, but I think that they needed to keep some things secret, and they did. Mm. Whether for national security or perhaps even for whatever more reason, yeah, ominous. Yeah. Let's go back and talk about Dr. Berkeley for a second, and some of the things that he said later on, several years after the assassination, when he was asked to be questioned for the, I think it was the HSCA that I found it in your book. I was wondering if you can tell a little bit about his background and the way he kind of switched sides. In later years, he did, he did say that he felt that there was a conspiracy. Of yeah. course, was an admiral, and he was uh, John Kennedy's personal physician. And now, the interesting thing he was in he was in Parkland, and he was in the morgue um, at, at Bethesda. He's the only fellow that was at both places that was in right. in Bethesda. Yeah. And yet, if if uh, he saw he said nothing about the wound being just a, a tracheotomy, he didn't tell them that. That you know, he felt that it had been the president had been hit in the throat. Um, the only the only cut over that wound that had been done in the throat at Dallas was a I think it was like three quarters of an inch going across mm-hmm. the the small wound in the throat to put in a a tube, a tracheotomy tube, and that was it. But by the time it reaches Bethesda, it is a big open gaping gash. So the wound had been totally obliterated. You couldn't tell that there had been a bullet wound there, and so the people at uh, the people at Bethesda assumed that it was a uh, a trick. Except that um, I can't remember the fellow's name now. He was a doctor that called up uh, Doctor Humes personally uh, from Parkland. From yeah, not yeah. from Parkland, oh, but yeah. from his own home, oh, and okay. told him about this. And while he's talking to Dr. Humes, he said, I've got to go. They're telling me I can't talk about it and put the phone down. And that was it. So he knew. He knew yeah. about the bullet wound in the throat. That's not widely known, but he knew. He knew. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about Dr. Humes. Uh, he was one of the autopsy doctors. And uh, how he helped out in the cover-up by burning his draft notes? Yes. Well, he admitted that he had burned the first set of autopsy notes that he took while he was in the morgue. His excuse was was that he had seen, uh, as a young man, Lincoln's, the chair that Lincoln was shot in, and that there had been some kind of blood or something on the back of the chair. It was in some sort of museum or something, and he mm-hmm. saw that. And when he uh, was, was the doctor there, he decided that he didn't want, uh, for history's sake, to have these notes to be looked at by people with the president's blood on them. And that's why he burned the notes. However, 
His autopsy face sheet has blood on it, and it's it's available. It was in the mm-hmm. archives. So if 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 he burned the autopsy notes because there was blood on them, why didn't he burn the face sheet exactly. as well and do a new face sheet? Yeah, it was just another part, I feel, of the cover-up. Any speculation? Well, it would it would just be speculation, but mm-hmm. it it's a you know a heck of a thing to to have the original notes from him burned. He said that that uh, oh everything is everything's fine. These I just copied you know from my notes and I just burned these because of the blood on them. Um, but there's so many things you know from start to finish, from from the shooting in Dealey Plaza to how the body looked at uh, Parkland Hospital, to how the body then shows up and looks different as far as the wounds are concerned in Bethesda. Nothing about this case from start to finish is is a straight, cut-and-dried thing. You can argue about witnesses and what they saw in Dallas, okay? Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, as I'm, uh, as I'm, this is in the book, as I'm, mm-hmm. the, the first trip I took to Dallas, um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of wandering around. I'd never been there before, although I'd seen it many times, you know, in film like everyone else. And I'm just kind of looking around, and I'm looking at the overpass, and I'm kind of walking down the little sidewalk there and trying to take it all in, and I hear, boom, hmm. boom, boom, and I turn around, and here's the limo going down the street. And I was really shocked by the whole thing until I remembered that for $25, you could take a ride in the exact replica of the limousine oh from where God. Kennedy took off from Love Field huh. to uh, to where he was shot in Dallas with a recording of the shots as he's going down that little piece of street there where he was shot. It 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 gave me it, it was really a, a a bad thing. It's a it's a kind of a little sleazy thing that they did to make money. On the other hand, um, it being caught unaware like that. Just being in the plaza like a witness would, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of looking around. When that happened, it left me so shaken, and I quickly looked around in the plaza to make sure that other people weren't looking at me, uh, mm-hmm. because it really shook me up. Um, it gave me a sense. It was very helpful because it gave me a sense of what other witnesses must have been going through at that time, because it was so quick. It was so unexpected. Yeah, that's the it thing. It was all very yeah. quick, less than six seconds. <sighs> When you spoke with Bill Newman, Bill Newman was a witness that was closest to President Kennedy when that fatal shot came and blew his head off. Did he give you further insight? He did. Stan, uh, he um, he was very nice to me. He mm-hmm. uh, we vis- I visited him with a couple of other researchers, Ian Griggs from uh, London mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, a friend Mark Rowe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I met them, uh, and I'm talking to Ian and I said, well, I've got an interview with uh, with Bill Newman. I've got to go. And this look came over his face, and he said, well, how did you manage that? <laughs> and I said, well, I called him up and asked him, and he said, yes. So I went to a phone bank to confirm my meeting with Bill. I turned around, and Ian is standing there. And he says, now, William, I, I don't mean to you know push in on this, but would you mind if we went with you? So I called Bill back and said, i got a couple of friends here that would like to come out. So we it, it, it was a great thing because we were new we were going to, see this guy and I'd, I'd wanted to meet him for a long time and so the, the rush out there to, to find his place mm. um, going into his office uh, meeting him for the first time I'd seen the film, we've all seen the film of where he's laying on the ground over his kids and Gail, That's his right. wife, is laying over their mm-hmm. children I'd seen that so many times it had been burned into my brain so to meet them personally was really something for me and as he, was, he, he told us, he sat down and told us the story of how 
he had come to be there and Gail had come to be there and they couldn't get a, a good look at him, so they, they went ahead and went to the plaza. Mm. And when the shots rang out, he said, the shots rang out from directly over our heads. Now, they were standing on the, on the little sidewalk there and the fence, the picket fence, was directly behind them. The grassy knoll. The grassy, the so-called grassy knoll. Mm. And he said, the bullets came from over, directly over our heads. And he said, that's it, hit the ground. Absolutely. And they hit the ground and fell on their children. Now, he did say that he saw, uh, when, the, when the last shot rang out, he was standing there, and he saw the bullet hit the president in the head. Uh, and he said he saw the, the white and then the red, and Kennedy uh, was knocked over like somebody had taken a bat and hit him in the side of the head and knocked him over into, into his wife's lap. It's funny, you know, because we all see the films and things, but to actually see something like that happen right in front of your face, it must have been horrifying to think that somebody was shooting and your kids are right there. Yes, and and that's when he said, "Hit the that's it, hit the ground," and yeah. they did. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a thing. The interesting thing he said was is that uh, as the shots were ringing out, there was a there was a point where the uh, where the uh, limousine stopped mm-hmm. for a few seconds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he and he saw the light come on. The, the limousine stopped. He said, "When I say stop, I mean just for a few seconds, and then it went on." Now, nowhere in the Sapruder film do you see that. That's right. Yeah. But there are more witnesses than Bill Newman that said the limousine stopped. Mm-hmm. And that gets into the controversy: was the Sapruder film altered, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I have no answers for that. Yeah, neither do I. Let's go back into the uh, autopsy room for a second. Many people have said that. It was the Kennedy family calling the shots from the penthouse in Bethesda, in the top floor of Bethesda. Do you follow suit with that? Do you think that's in fact the case, that they were relaying their desires via telephone to Dr. Berkeley? Some of the people that I interviewed said that they thought that's what was going on. Yeah. That, that, and probably, maybe not Jackie, but maybe Bobby. Bobby. And yeah. there's speculation, of course, you know, uh, President Kennedy had Addison's disease. Mm-hmm. And, and... Probably they wanted them to be careful as far as divulging that fact, and so that's why they didn't want uh, a full autopsy. But there was apparently a full autopsy done, except for, of course, tracking of the tracking of the neck wound. Yeah, I had an FBI agent. One of uh-huh. the FBI agents told me the Kennedy family didn't want an autopsy. We did want a full autopsy, and there was a full autopsy done. Of course, you know, yeah. everybody's memory can be different. That's why I try to stay away from speculation. I just try to lay out the information okay, because I wasn't enough. there. I try to mm-hmm. try to be really careful about that and making any kind of speculative um, thing that I don't know about. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Well, let's get into that. Can you tell our listeners about... I keep calling him Siebert, but it's Seibert. It's Seibert. Yeah, and O'Neill. Jim Seibert. Why are their testimonies critical to the events that took place in, in Bethesda? Um, okay. Two FBI agents, and maybe just fill in from there. These two FBI agents, uh, James Seibert and Francis X. O'Neill, were told by J. Edgar Hoover to follow the body um, and and to stay with the body, and whatever evidence was recovered, to take it back to the FBI laboratory. So I think they got into the third car and followed the ambulance. Uh, this is this is the official ambulance now. Mm-hmm. This is not the not the, the ambulance that had the metal shipping casket. They followed the ambulance. The ambulance stops. They get out and they didn't remember whether 
they I guess they kind of trotted back behind the the morgue area there and um, now there's a couple of different versions of this we can get into this but sure uh, the the uh, when I asked Jim Seibert mm-hmm. uh, who unloaded how did they unload the casket and who unloaded it Jim Seibert said well there was me mm-hmm. and uh, O'Neill Kellerman and Greer and he said maybe a few people came out of the came out of the uh, morgue thing there because it was a heavy casket and just four men couldn't carry it. So apparently they put it on a, uh, some sort of conveyance and wheeled it into the to the morgue and uh, it went from there. Uh, what makes their testimony so unique is that they took notes while they were in the morgue yeah. because they overheard that they are not medical men, they're, they're from the FBI, but they heard doctors use... Uh, terms in different, uh, they heard the measurements and, and saw them write it on the sheet and that sort of thing. And they wrote what is called an FD-302, uh, which is just basically their report. And in this report, uh, from their notes, there's a, there's a statement in there that says, there's been apparent surgery of the, of the head area, namely in the top of the skull. Now they heard that because one of the doctors, I think it was Humes, said that there has been apparent surgery, namely in his opposite skull. So they wrote that down in their notes. Just let me interrupt you here for a second. I had Dick Russell on this afternoon, and he was talking about Doug Horn, who he had interviewed for his new book. And Doug Horn had said that Humes and Boswell were responsible for a pre-autopsy autopsy. Somehow that doesn't fit in with what Boswell has just said. How do you feel about that? Here's Boswell saying, on the one hand, that there's been surgery to the head, but if he's already caused that, maybe a half an hour before that, if he'd done the alterations to the body himself, why would he say such a thing and give himself uh, away? Well, that's that's hard to speculate on. I do believe yeah. that the doctors, for whatever reason, uh, now this is pure speculation mm-hmm. on my part, mm-hmm. but Dennis David told me that about three or four days after the autopsy that he... Uh, met up with Boswell, and they're walking along, and, and he'd heard the rumors by then that the body was in the in, a, in the cheap metal shipping casket, and then he'd seen the the display casket on TV. He's sitting there, Dennis David is sitting there watching TV, and he sees this footage of the the display casket. And he said, "Hey, that's not the casket that that uh, I unloaded." And so he asked Boswell three or four days later, um, which one had the body in it, and Boswell said. Well, there was only one with the body in it, and you should know you're the one that unloaded it, or had it unloaded. So given that statement, they had to know that something was going on. They had to be asked at some point, you know, this is what we've got going, whether they were told for national security purposes uh, or whatever. There was a little scenario that they were supposed to follow. Okay, whatever the motive was behind it. Whatever the motive was, I believe they had to, to know to a certain extent something was not quite right. Okay. Fair it's the enough. only way that it fits. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. We were talking about uh, Seibert and O'Neill and what Jim Seibert has, has revealed to you. We were talking about the FD-302 surgery yes. in the top of the head. Um, I'm not exactly sure where you want me to go from there. Well, um, um, I, I guess just about everything, the little pill bottle that was brought in to the autopsy with fragments in it. I was just wondering where these fragments came from. <laughs> You know what I mean? They just show up, and there's not supposed to be any fragments in the body, et cetera, et cetera. And Dennis David tells the story of um, that after he unloaded 
uh, gave orders to five or six other people to unload. He's what's called the officer of the day. Mm-hmm. And so he basically gave orders to have this casket unloaded, and then he went about his other duties, which was checking out the building and making sure security was tight and relieving different people if they needed to go to the bathroom, things like that. Mm-hmm. And he was stopped by uh, one of his superiors and said, you know, we need somebody to type up this memo. There was an agent there, and the agent needed this memo typed. And he said, well, I have clearance up in, in including secrets. So he went up into this room uh, where there was a typewriter. The agent was with him, and so was his superior. He typed up this memorandum. The basics of uh, is uh, so he handed Dennis this pill vial. This agent handed Dennis a pill vial, and it had uh, fragments of bullets in it. It had maybe not enough for two bullets, but more than enough for one bullet. And so he typed up this bullet and said, you know, these fragments were taken from the head of John F. Kennedy on this date, so-and-so. Okay, then Dennis signs off on the whole thing. He said the agent took the memo, and he uh, and he took the, the paper that Dennis had typed up, and he even went as far as to take the typewriter ribbon out of the typewriter <laughs> and said, okay, That's this is, you know, this is secret, and you know that, and that was the end of it. Unbelievable. And here's another one of those crazy things. Another one of those little weird things. Now, going back, they weren't finding any fragments. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. They weren't finding any fragments in the body. So where did those fragments come from? Where did they and who was the from? agent that, that had the memo typed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know. Unbelievable. Oh. There were lots of little strange things oh. going on that night. It's so bizarre, like you said, this whole thing from start to finish. It was an obvious cover-up. I was talking a little bit with Dick Russell about this afternoon. Do you feel that the cover-up was part of a greater conspiracy? Do you think it was in panic mode with national security being the motive behind it all? The fear that perhaps there was indeed a communist component. Conspiracy, and yeah. so therefore we have to cover this whole thing up. Yeah, I don't well, know that, but anyway. I suppose that's possible, but... I really lean toward the fact that, that you know, be, simply because of I've been in, you know, close to the window mm-hmm. up in the sixth floor. There's okay. no argument that, that with the right time and circumstances and the right rifle, somebody could make those shots from, from that building. Um, but that gets into Oswald and how he came to be there and his little trips to Russia, mm. coming back and not being prosecuted for basically trying to defect. And he brings home a Russian wife and... Uh, all those things. So he winds up in the building to do the shots, and then he winds up getting killed by Jack Ruby. And then we have, you know, the problems with the autopsy. So all of that can combined is more than a little suspicious. So to just say they just did this to to cover up because they didn't want World War Three to go on is is um, I think it's possible, but I don't think that's really what happened. I think there was some scenario going on, and I, I believe they carried it out, and I believe they got away with it, whoever they were. Mm. Now, Jim Seibert is adamant that the doctors doing the autopsy found no exit wound in JFK's back. Uh, apparently, they had probed it with a metal probe, and it didn't go all the way through. It stopped. Well, that's what that's what Paul, Paul O'Connor, O'Connor was saying about around the lung, the, uh, I forget the name of the tissue. That, yes, that the bullet had gone in and stopped and bruised the pleural lining, that's and then it went downward. It did not go up. And right. if that's true, then they should have found fragments, but they didn't. That comes into, you know, um, Jim Jenkins said when he saw the body, who was Paul O'Connor's partner that night, he said that, that he was looking at the head, and they said that the doctor said that 
it, looking at the looking at the wound in the head said that it looked like it had been uh, it had been lengthened that it had been cut a little bit mm-hmm. uh, by a by a surgical instrument. And that's before any cutting on the body had begun. So why take the brain? Take the brain. You can't look at the brain and tell which direction the bullets were coming from. That's right. That's so you, right. you want to go back to the morgue and, and talk about um, the brain and how they, they do all that? Sure. They, they Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul O'Connor said that there was no brain to be removed. Mm-hmm. Jim Jenkins, his partner, said, I was handed a brain to infuse that night. And he said that the damage to the brain didn't match the damage to the skull. Uh, And that he felt that the brain was small. Mm. Um, He said that normally when you take the brain out, he said, I was having trouble putting... They had a a way of of fixing brains for for study at Bethesda. You took the brain and you took needles full of formalin and you shot it into the brain through the vessels hanging off of the brain, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you took the brain after you'd done that, and you put it in what's called a brain bucket. It's a bucket that has uh, a gauze bridge on it so that you can set the brain in, and it sits in the formula for a couple of weeks, and it hardens. He said, I was having trouble getting the needles into the vessels of the brain, and I had to have somebody come and help me with that. And I said, well, what, is that? what does that mean to mm. you? And he said, well, it, it appeared that the brain had been out of the head for some time mm. and that the vessels at the end had had constricted, you know, that, mm-hmm. meaning that the, the brain had been out for a while. And he told me that that he, at this point he tells me, I said, well, what does that mean to you that, that it constricted and the brain had been out of the head for a while? And he said, look, I think the brain had been removed and then replaced. Now, I'm sitting in a little hotel room um, in uh, in. Uh, Alabama. Mm-hmm. No, in, in uh, New Orleans. He came from, from Alabama and met me in New Orleans. And uh, this is after months of talking to him and trying mm-hmm. to work up the courage to get an interview with him because he hadn't talked to many, many researchers. And so he did agree to see me. I get into, um, I get in there and I go to a restaurant with him and we're, we're having a Coke and, and he's talking to me about things that he saw and I wanted to be fresh for the interview so I didn't want to get too deeply into it mm-hmm. so I said well let's let's go film it I wanted to be able to capture the emotion on film and things and so I knew I was coming after that he said William I just soon sit here and drink coke and talk to you about it but I don't want you to film it yeah he didn't want it yeah but then he so did. I am mm-hmm. you know I don't know where to go from here because I had told him that mm-hmm. you know I was going to do this book of oral history and that that I uh, was just going to let him speak to me it wasn't going to be my theory mm-hmm. I told every one of these guys this that that it wasn't about theories, it was just about letting them tell their story. And you traveled and, all that way, too. So Yeah, and I yeah. traveled all that way, but he didn't know me from Adam. I was just a guy over the phone, you know? Mm-hmm. There's something about Jim Jenkins that, that he really didn't want to do this, but for whatever reason that he wanted this information to come out, he agreed to see me. And then he didn't want to do that. And then he saw the look on my face, and I didn't really know what to say. I, he looked at me for seemed a century, and it was probably only about 10 seconds. And he said, all right, William, I'll do it for you. So, you know, I jumped up from the table. We we went into the room there. I, I had this new little camera. I hadn't had much experience with it. I, I didn't know how much time. I'd had this whole scenario that I was going to have time to sit with them. Maybe we'd find a nice place in the French Quarter. It would be a nice, relaxed visit. But that's not the way it turned out. And so he told me his wife was going to come back in a very short time. 
So now I'm I'm under pressure. I'm under the gun to get what I can on film. So get him up in the room, set the camera up, and sat down. And I just I had a rough set of, of questions I wanted to ask him. And I just started asking questions. Ask the question, get the answer. Ask the question, get the answer. Just as fast as I could because I didn't know if he was going to mm-hmm. give me 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know what. And it was one of the best interviews that I have in the book. I, I He left me. I wish I could could give you the feel of it. Of, of sitting across from this fellow, like you'd sit across the table from somebody and have coffee, except I've got a I've got a camera on him. Um, and while he's telling me this, and when he said to me, "I think the brain was removed and replaced," mm. you could feel his emotion. You could, you know, you could literally feel it while he said that. And and it was it was absolutely stunning to me. What kind of emotion was it? Uh, anger. Uh... <sighs> Just horrific, haunting. Um, something he'd been living with, mm. and and told me, you know. And I'm not the first person to interview most of these people. The, 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 David Lifton had interviewed uh, some of these fellows for the book that he'd written, but Best evidence. I wanted to touch it for myself. And so, the only way I could do that was was to get them to talk to me. The, where I had some real luck was in interviewing the FBI agents um, and, and having them tell me their story. Um, but even they told me things, Jim Jenkins told me things that he didn't tell anybody else. So um, it was just it was just the feeling of being in there and, and hearing him say that and seeing seeing his face while he was telling it to me. It was it was really dramatic. Any thoughts about releasing that video? I do have I do have thoughts about that. Um, I haven't talked to Jim about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may happen in the near future. I've got lots of things that I've done that I haven't released yet that I probably should. Yeah, because just for historical record archives, you know, and it would well, make a great CD-ROM. Well, basically, what what I filmed is basically in the book, except mm-hmm. for the conference in Florida. I haven't I haven't done anything with that yet. But basically, what you have in the book is what I filmed, so it's in there. Um, it may give you a, a really good sense to see it on film. Um, but basically what I recorded is in the book. Okay. And the book is called In the Eye of History, Disclosures in the JFK Assassination Medical Evidence, and it's written by William Matson Law. I should just say that you can pick up the book at Chapters, and you all know Christmas is coming. You're going to need those stocking stuffers. <laughs> you can also pick a... <laughs> strange little book about an autopsy to give folks for Christmas. I think it's a great idea. You're going to laugh, but it's... Particularly something I would ask for. I've already, I've already put a request in to pick up uh, Oliver Stone's got a new release, the ultimate, what is he, what does he call it, the ultimate collector's item JFK or something like that. It's, it's, oh, really? Uh, yeah, hard. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, Jim DiOgenio was telling me about it, and uh, I've already put my order in for it with, uh, with my honey, so. I'll have to pick that up. That's the only one I don't have yet. You gotta ask your wife for it, you see that? Yeah. <laughs> Stocking. Good stuff. idea. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. So again, people that are listening are obviously interested in this subject matter, so why not? I mean, it's a great book. I've read it and I've learned a 
ton of stuff from it. And the revelations, the Paul O'Connor story, the FBI agent Seibert and O'Neill, the fact that you have those guys on record, you even got them to talk about when they interviewed the two Secret Service agents that were in JFK's car that day. The driver was Secret Service agent Greer, and on his passenger side in the front seat right beside him was Secret Service agent Kellerman. For a long time, uh, not a long time, but there was speculation that Greer somehow was involved in the assassination. He stopped the car. Uh, there was that crazy idea that he had turned around and uh, shot the president himself. Yeah, that was just garbage. Oh, complete. <laughs> it's like, when when yeah. things like that are put out and these crazy theories are put out, it, it hurts a researcher that's just trying to yes. get yes. people to tell their story, to that's tell right. the facts. That craziness of... Don't you think that Jacqueline Kennedy might have had a little something to say about that? She would have had to have seen uh, that happen, mm -hmm. and yet she made no mention of it. Or Mrs. Connolly, even. Or know? Mrs. Connolly. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense on the surface. No, it certainly doesn't. But all those stories, I guess what I'm trying to tell people is those stories are right in there. And these are the guys that were right there that night, inside, directly inside, right beside the body, and doing things to body parts right inside Bethesda's morgue that night, working on JFK. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM and WCKLU on the Internet. I'm going to plug JFKLancer.com. Fantastic, fantastic resource, and they've been instrumental in helping me out in getting these terrific guests for this complete series on JFK this month. We are speaking with William Law, and we're discussing, of course, the autopsy. Can we talk a little bit about Gerald Custer? Yes. And his role at that autopsy. Yes. Okay. He was the first one that I called when, when I got back home from the conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called him up, explained who I was, and uh, that I wanted to do this oral history. And he started telling me that he had just come back from uh, the National Archives. They had him down there. The Records Review Board had him That's down right. there, yeah. where he went through their um, items down there looking at it. And... I made arrangements. He finally said yes, and I went to Pittsburgh and uh, with a camera and interviewed him. Uh, I went with uh, Vincent Palmaro, who had uh, written mm -hmm. uh, Survivor's Guilt. Uh, I had no one to stay with in Pittsburgh while I was down there, so I contacted Deborah Conway at Lancer, and I said, look, I've got this interview, and I have nobody mm -hmm. to stay with, and she put me with uh, Vince Palmaro. And uh, so I stayed at his home. Uh, and went, we both went out and uh, met Gerald Custer. Now, I'd first seen uh, Gerald Custer uh, years before, and uh, David Lipton had done a video, um, Best Evidence video, and that's the first time I'd seen Custer. Oh, I didn't and, know but, that. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, uh, so I, I go there and meet, and his wife meets us at the door and says, we've been having dessert while we've been waiting for you. And I walk in, mm -hmm. and there Gerald Custer is having some cake, and he gets up and introduces himself. And... Uh, we talk a little bit, and one thing I can remember he said to me before we started the interview, he said, oh, if you could have been present that night, your ears would have burned. Mm. Well, not, you know, you want to, when you do an interview, you want to keep it fresh. You want to try to get them on film or on the recorder telling the story, you know, so that it is fresh. And, and that I've heard it maybe for the first time, and so I can ask questions from that, that point. So we set up in a room, and... Uh, I started asking him about his experiences, and he mm -hmm. took over the duty that night from a from a guy that had a date, and that's how he happened to be there. He was uh, 
he was living uh, away from home and he was living there on the grounds I guess I can't remember now but he was he was there and he took over the duty and that's how he happened to be there mm-hmm. taking the x-rays pretty wild pretty wild and he was explaining to me uh, about seeing the body on the table and how they mm-hmm. how he had to move this uh, portable x-ray machine around and try to get you have to have a certain distance uh, from for the x-ray machine and uh, to get the appropriate thing he said it was so wild in there he was having to That's scream right. at people to to move out of the way so that he could get his machinery set up so that he could take the x-rays um, the interesting thing was he said he double loaded uh, the the x-ray machine and I said well what does that mean mm-hmm. and he explained how you put you put two loads of film into the the machine so that if one negative doesn't come out well the other one will and he double loaded this and he said he stuck these extra copies into um, an envelope and hid it behind the insignia seal there at the hospital because he thought he might want to keep those. Mm-hmm. And then he decided, after thinking about it for a while, that maybe he ought to get rid of those. And so that history was destroyed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but who can blame him? Because look at all the witnesses that were showing up dead. Well, I asked him why he did that, and he said, "Well, I could have, I could have wound up in prison." Mm. If they traced it back to me, so that's that's when he destroyed those, and he said, never thinking, you know, that it could have yeah. cleared up a lot of the problems that we have with the autopsy There's discrepancies. How does he feel? How did he feel about the uh, witnessing the autopsy X-rays that are in the archives, as opposed to the ones that he took? Well, when he first contacted me, or when I first contacted mm-hmm. him. Uh, he told me, I said, I asked him directly, what do you think happened? And he said, I think he was set up by a CIA hit squad. Now, that, that kind of took me aback because it's like, it's one thing to read something like that in a book that somebody's written, but to hear it from the mouth of somebody yeah. that had actually been there, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, was really something. There, the, the problem is, is that after I got done interviewing Gerald Custer, uh, some months later, and I would... He would look at me and, and say, "Yeah, this is this is an X-ray I took, and here's here's what happened." There was an interview that was done on Cron TV in 1988, where he was interviewed by Sylvia Chase. And when when she handed him a copy of what was supposedly his X-ray, he looked at this X-ray in puzzlement and and said, "Well, this area was gone," and so he seemed to not mm-hmm. understand why the X-ray looked the way it did. And yet, when I interviewed him years later. He had changed on that. So um, I set up to do another interview with him and ask some really hard-boiled questions uh, as far as what happened. And and so he had to put off because he had lost the one job he had and was going to another job. And not too long after that, I got a call uh, from somebody with a rumor that Gerald had died. So I called up his wife, and, and I said, I've heard this rumor that Gerald passed away. And she said, well, Bill, it's not a rumor. Um, he died of a heart attack. Um, and, it, and it was a really tragic story. I mean, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he died of his heart attack, and it, they, she just saw him long enough to say goodbye, and he passed. Now, the interesting thing about that, he, he was overweight and things like that, but he was working on, with a fellow that, that I think influenced him when I interviewed him, and so that's why he had changed his mind a little bit in, in thinking that this probably was the X-ray that he had taken of the president's head and the lateral 
the side view of the president's head. Um, he was working with a fellow on a book of his experiences. Gerald died in, in uh, the same hospital. Six, six weeks later, the guy that he was working on the book with died. Massive heart attack, died in the same hospital. Mm. Now, that freaked me out a little bit. As it would I. How does that affect you as a writer? Have you ever felt threatened, like somebody was following you? I don't mean to imply that you're paranoid. I don't mean that at all. But have you ever felt, because of the subject matter that you're dealing with, that perhaps there might be some unfriendly people out there that may not appreciate what you're doing? You know, I, I never really have given it a lot of consideration. I'll tell you a little story. Sure. I was, I was doing this for uh, another writer that was doing a book, Larry Hancock. Um, I was asked to go out. So I'm working on a new book on Robert Kennedy, and I was going to be out in California. Mm-hmm. And they had found this witness uh, that they, they wanted to interview that said he had uh, gotten in with this group of Cubans and that he'd been hanging with them for a while. And after about a year and a half of being with these guys, they started bragging about how they killed JFK and got away with it. And so they wanted me to see if I could basically locate him talk him into talking to me, and then bring the information back for the book. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I, they sent me some papers, and from that I was able to track him down. Mm-hmm. And um, he did indeed uh, see me. Uh, the, the, getting the story behind that interesting, but we probably don't have time to go into it. But before I left to go interview him, uh, Deborah Conway said, now, William, we know... We don't know much about this guy. And, you know, as you know, there have been a lot of strange things that have happened to people mm-hmm. uh, over the years that have done this. And she said, uh, you know, you probably should make out your will. Oh, my God. Deborah <laughs> told you that from, from JFK Lancer? She did. And, uh, and I just, I wasn't really concentrating on that. I was, I was concentrating on doing the research for my RFK book. And so uh-huh. I just kind of blew that off and really didn't pay much of attention to it. But I didn't grasp who I had until I was sitting in front of him. He turned out to be the whistleblower for Iran Contra. Really? And that, and his, and that, uh, his his name is all over the notebooks of Oliver North. Oh my goodness! Yes, yes. And so he started telling me all these things, and it was like, oh Lord, you know, I didn't grasp what I had because I was doing this for another writer, and I was just uh-huh. doing this as a favor. And so, um. It was a it was a pretty neat experience. I had Mark Sobel, who was a film director yes, in Hollywood, yes. uh-huh. done a number of uh, number of TV movies and done a movie called The Commission. Mm-hmm. And we were working on this project on RFK together. Mm-hmm. And and Mark would uh, Mark and I came out of his house. We got into Mark's car to 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 leave. And before he started up his vehicle, he looked at me and he said, with these eyes, he looked at me and said, "I'm just the camera guy." They never kill the camera guy. (laughs) And later, this is like a year later, we're at a conference together, and it's late at night. We're talking to Lamar Waldron Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. his book that had come out, Ultimate Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And Mark had interviewed him, and so um, Mark's putting away his equipment. And... As, as he's putting away his equipment, I'm telling Lamar, you know, the story about going and interviewing this witness. And then I said, you know, and I was told to make out my will. I hadn't told this to Mark, and so Mark's eyes got really big, and he kind of slumped against the wall, and he looked at me and he said, why didn't you tell me? 
Now, what I said was, well, if I had told you, you might not have come with me. But if I had been <laughs> smart, I should have said, well, they never kill the camera guy. <laughs> That's just one of the many interesting experiences you can have doing this kind of thing. Do you still get a Christmas card from Mark? <laughs> We're working together, as a matter of fact, I on, know, on, a, on a film, and uh, it's it's out traveling the circuit now on at film festivals. Do you want to plug work. RFK? RFK is a, is a project that uh, we started when I first met Mark, and uh, we met, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a book on RFK. We were talking about our projects, and uh, we we talked before by phone. Uh, we met in Dallas at the conference, and as we were talking about, it, I said, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and do a book on. Robert Kennedy, and you live in Los Angeles, and if I do this, I'm going to have to go to Los Angeles quite a bit uh, to do interviews. Would you care to come along uh, and film these interviews that I need for the book? And he happily agreed to do that. And that's we started doing that, and and that wound up to be, those filmed interviews wound up to be uh, the documentary that we made, RFK. RFK. We've got, we've got 19 or 20 people in it, all people directly uh, involved in the pantry or on the periphery or lawyers that were involved uh it's been a real experience we've spent the last three years doing it here in Sudbury we have something called the Sudbury Cinema Festival and I know RFK was at the Montreal one I originally come from Montreal and I'll tell you the Sudbury one kicks Montreal's butt I bet everybody in Sudbury just went yay (laughs) (laughs) um I'm going to put you in touch with those folks perhaps next year there might be a possibility that folks in Sudbury can see that movie because I think it would be really, really worthwhile for the Sudbury audience to see that. I think it would be a powerful experience for everybody involved. Why I do this mm-hmm. is, of course, it, these were two of the darkest turning points in, in America's history. Oh, absolutely. And I'm in love with history. Mm-hmm. But I grew up with this. You know, this has been part of my life. And so I can't explain to you what it's like when you're sitting across from a witness that was involved in something like this, to sit there and talk to that person and look them in the eyes while they tell you their experiences about what mm-hmm. they went through. It's, it's an incredible feeling to, to do that and to have it for the record, for history, because we deserve truth in history. And there's a lot of work to be done in this case. And I'm, I'm working against time every day trying to get as many people down as I can. Yeah, because folks are record. getting older. Absolutely. All of us are getting older. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. We are talking with none other than William Matson Law, and he's got a terrific book out. He is an investigative reporter in The Eye of History is the name of the book, Disclosures in the JFK Assassination medical evidence and you can pick the book up at any chapters in the country if you're listening across the country or uh, if you're listening in Sudbury where I got it right at chapters right here in Sudbury you can also pick it up at the JFK Lancer website which is www.jfklancer.com website you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM www.cklu .ca. We're streaming across the world now as we speak. And we're talking about the JFK autopsy, the anomalies that went on. William has interviewed the actual people that were right there at the autopsy. It's an incredible, incredible book. If you're into this subject matter, and even if you're not, if this is a subject that affected everybody. It's like 9-11. Everybody in the world remembers where they were on 9-11, especially the younger folks. Well, that was 
very similar for us when Jack Kennedy was killed, when Martin Luther King was killed, and then four months later, Bobby Kennedy. And, uh, geez, it kind of just, the whole world just seemed to shrink at that point. We ended up with Nixon when we could have had Bobby Kennedy. Just a horrible, horrible time. I'm trying to draw an analogy, a parallel. You know the feeling that Barack Obama has Barack Obama Barack. So you Barack yeah. Okay, uh, it's a little Hebrew thing. Anyways, um, he's evoking uh, a sense of hope, a sense of new beginning. It must have been what we're seeing now yeah. with Barack Obama and the crowds that we've we've seen, and especially uh, you know, when he'd won. Looking out over those the crowd, you know that he was speaking in front of. Mm-hmm. It, this must be a great deal like what it was like when John Kennedy came into office. Must be uh, a young, bright uh, person that can that can fire people's imagination. That makes them yeah. be the best they can be. Yeah, vision. Kennedy could. It can be argued that Kennedy was not a virtuous person, but he was somebody that could bring you to virtue simply by how he could give a speech, how how he believed we could do things, mm-hmm. how he believed that we could go to the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, those big ideas, you know, we can do this as a people. In the Cold War. In the Cold War. Yeah. And here we are in the situation that we're in now with world economies collapsing and, and mm-hmm. things going wrong. Things like this haven't been seen since the Great Depression. That's and right. here comes this bright, shining, hopeful person. It must be very similar to to what was going on in the early 1960s. We're getting a taste of it. Do you remember where you were when Kennedy was killed? Are you old enough to remember? I was six years old. I remember... Well, you're my age. Okay. I remember that... My family was very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are some of the first really clear memories that I have. I can remember them looking at the at the at the grave, uh, and my father talking about mm-hmm. it. Um, I can I can remember my father saying Johnson had something to do with this. Mm-hmm. You can count on it. And as a young guy, and we would talk about it as a teenager, I would go, "Oh, come on, Dad, we're talking about the President of the United States." Mm-hmm. Well, my father was a little more cynical at that point than I was, but I have, I have since uh, become a little cynical in dealing with all of this. I have talked to people that were uh, on Johnson's detail, and I can prove that Johnson was involved, but I'm not going to say he's not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had, <laughs> I had two Secret Service agents tell me separately, almost using the same exact words, when I said, "What was your feeling about President Johnson?" And they both said, oh, he was the most deplorable man I ever knew. Is that right? That's wow. right. Huh. 45 years later, do you think we're getting closer to revelation? I think we are. Whether or not I, we're going to be able to, you know, does it really matter who, who did the actual shooting? It matters. It matters that it was done mm-hmm. and for the reasons that it was done. And the fact that our Constitution was subverted. Why was Kennedy killed? Why was Kennedy killed? Uh, going back to what Colonel Fletcher Prouty was questioning, you know? That's, I, uh, that's the real question, why? I have found a new witness. Oh, have uh, you? I have. Uh, and do you want me to talk about that a little sure, bit? Sure, please, please. He actually, uh, I'll tell you the story. Um, 
I had just finished the book. It was about to go to publication. Mm -hmm. I had an original drawing done for me by A.H. A. Rydberg, who, uh, oh, who yeah. was the Warren yeah. Commission artist, mm -hmm. who, had, who had done the, the drawings of the head for to be shown before the Warren Commission. He, I asked him to do this drawing of the inside of the morgue so that people could get a, a better uh, look at what, what the morgue looked like. Mm -hmm. And he agreed to do that. Uh, I didn't use it in the book because I would take it to, I sent copies of it to the others, and they would have a little disagreement of what, about where was what. So I figured I'll just stay out of the controversy and not use the picture. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I, I gave it to a person that, that was over at my house that was uh, a friend of my wife's and um, said, this is what's going in the book. This is an original drawing. And um, I was really proud of it. And I gave it to her, and she looked at it, and she got this funny little smile on her face. Hmm. And she said, you know, my father-in-law would really like to see this. And I said, well, I thought in my head, yeah, your father-in-law and a bunch of other people, you know. <laughs> and she said, she looked up at me and her eyes were sparkling. And she said, because he was there, you know. <laughs> I said, what? She said, yeah, he was there. He worked in the White House under President Kennedy. He tells us stories about President Kennedy all the time. Holy cow. And I said, well, you do, do you think that you could get him to talk to me at some point? So at some point... You know, I finally got his number, called him, and because he, she said he was in a van at the mm -hmm. head of the motorcade, I thought, well, I've got some little low-level technician here. The closest he's probably ever been to the president is when he took the van into the underground garage to have it serviced, right? <laughs> I called him up, and I, I introduced myself, and I said, I'm, you know, I've done this book, and uh, mm -hmm. your daughter-in-law tells me that uh, you were involved in all that, that you were in a van ahead of the motorcade. And uh, he laughed, and he said, well, um, I was involved in all that the aftermath, he said, but I wasn't in a van at the head of the motorcade. He said, I was in the nose of Air Force One. Oh. He said, I traveled all over the world with President Kennedy. And uh, when I heard the news uh, about that, they came and got me and took me to Parkland. And I'm the guy that held the phone line open between Washington, D.C. and Dallas. Oh, my God. <laughs> So now my heart rate starts no to speed kidding. up, and I feel my hand start to just grip the phone because I realize now what I've, yeah. I've got, you know. And, and so I started talking to him about this, and, and he's like, you know, I had some real sleepless nights about this. And then he said, into the conversation, he says, I know things I'll never tell. There are things I'll take to my grave. Really? And I said, well, do you realize that it's my job to try to get people like you to come forward for the historical record and, and tell about what you know. For the sake of the country. For the sake of the country and, and yeah. for the sake of history. So we go on talking a little more, and he says, and I'll tell you another thing. There's no way that Oswald made that shot from that building. Holy cow. And I said, well, what makes you say that? And he says, well, he said, the, the, the Secret Service agents and others, mm -hmm. he said, they tell one story for public consumption. But what they told me and others when they got back to Washington, D.C., was a whole different thing. And I said, well, there were stories floating all over Washington. He said, no, I'm talking about the people that were there. I'm talking about people that I entrusted with my life. I'm talking about people that I still entrust with my life. Huh. Yeah. So uh, it's a continuing thing, and I will write about it in, in, at some point. Well, you're going to have to come back on when you do. I will do that. That would be fantastic. Uh, folks, we're speaking with William Matson-Law, and he's got a book called In the Eye of History, Disclosures in the JFK Assassination, Medical Evidence. You can pick the book up at Chapters anywhere in the country. 
And like I did right here in Sudbury, you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, www.cklu.ca, and we're discussing the JFK autopsy. He has a masterful book out, and in the book, he has interviewed people who were actually there in the autopsy room that night, people who were examining the body of President Kennedy, people who were measuring and weighing the president's brain, and people that say there was no brain at all. Uh, We were talking about discrepancies, two caskets, two ambulances arriving. It's a fantastic book. It's full of all kinds of little anecdotes about people that were there that night, and I You know, if somebody's looking for a a stocking stuffer for Christmas, this would be a pretty good choice. I also want to plug and thank Deborah Conway. She has been instrumental from jfklancer.com in helping me get these guests in order to bring this information out to the people of Sudbury. But not only the people of Sudbury, we've been getting emails from all around the world, which is kind of inspiring, actually, to think that this little community slash university radio station can actually reach out and touch people. And as I found out, apparently we're number one uh, in our time slots, this show in Sudbury, which is kind of flattering also going up against the big guys, so to speak. But I don't think it's primarily the show. I think it's the guests that come on the show. I think this is a subject matter that just won't go away. And I think everybody, no matter where you live in the world, remembers President Kennedy and is anxious for the truth to come out. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 until midnight at night. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. In your book, William, you write, and I'm going to quote here, more metal remained in Connolly's body in the wrist and thigh bone than is missing from CE-399. I was wondering if you could explain the significance of this and maybe just explain what, well, you've kind of gone into what already the CE-399 is. Well, that is the book called Magic Bullet. Yeah. Uh, The the bullets, they've traced, you know, how much the bullets weigh and things like that. And by the time you weigh this bullet, they basically know how much uh, the bullet weighs. And so uh, by looking at the, the, they know how much is missing from it. And, and so there's more particles of, of dust of, uh, of metal that's in Governor Conley's wrist than is missing from the actual bullet. So you can tell from that that there's a problem with CE-399, mm-hmm. uh, causing all the wounds. There's some, there's some metal now missing from the bottom and I think a little missing from the top of the bullet where they took it for analysis, but, uh, that's about it. It's minuscule. Yes, compared it's very, to what, it's yeah. very tiny. Um, would you like me to talk about the FBI agents a little bit? Because yes, they were, very much so. They were basically uh, instrumental in this thing. Of uh, they, they started this with when they put uh, surgery of the head area in their FD three hundred two report. Okay, Cybert and O'Neill, FBI right. agents that were right there taking notes. Yes, and okay. and uh, Cybert had uh, O'Neill had talked a, a little bit. I think he's given uh, a couple of little things to an interviewer here or there. But nobody had been able to really crack either one of these guys and, and just sit down and have a have a one-on-one uh, with them. And when I when I tried to call them and interest them in uh, in my project, uh, I when I first contacted Cybert, I explained who I was and what I wanted to do, and he was very friendly and took time to answer some questions. And, and I really felt that I had connected with him, um, and he even offered a picture of himself for my book. Um, and I asked him about the, the surgery to the head area statement. Mm-hmm. I went right for it, and he said, well, 
He said, I wish we would have worded that better. That would have saved some confusion in some books about the surgery of the head area. He said that there was a huge piece of bone missing out of the, the president's head and, and that it looked like there had been surgery done. And that, but they said, we didn't make that observation. That was, that was what was, we overheard one of the doctors say. Um, and so, um, he said, I said, would you please give me an interview? Can I, can I come to you and could I put a camera on you and, and, film you and he said well i really don't want to do that and and i knew because i had later on i mm-hmm. I, I had correspondence from people that would that i got uh, from the archives that these people would say please i'm, I'm writing this uh, this paper on you i i would love to interview and in, in, interview you and he would turn all these people back over and go well you need to contact the fbi for that and uh, mm-hmm. he never gave uh, an interview outside of to the governmental bodies that requested that he appear so I knew that I was going to have a hard go of it, and so mm-hmm. I asked him for Frank O'Neill's number, and he was kind enough to give it to me, and I, and I called up Frank O'Neill, because Cybert had said, you know, look, if you want me to answer some questions, sometime you can call me, and if you've got a list of questions, I'll answer them, okay? Mm-hmm. So I, I was elated with the fact that I was disappointed he wouldn't go before the camera, but I was elated with the fact that, that he was willing to answer some questions for me. So he did give me Frank O'Neill's number, and I called Frank O'Neill, and, and he was very brusque and short and to the point. And, I introduced myself, and he said, uh, would you care to do this uh, in person or telephonically? And I said, well, if it's easier for me to come to you, I'll come to you. If you want to come here, I'll fly you out here, and, and you can talk about this. And he said, well, he said, uh, I'll have to think about that, but I'm going to call I'm going to call uh, Jim Seibert right now as soon as I get off the phone from talking to you, and I'm going to talk to him about this. Mm-hmm. And so he did. So um i waited a week and i read some all the documents i had on it and i called them back up now i really felt that i'd connected with jim cyber mm-hmm. and i felt that we uh got along quite well and so i was you know just full of goodwill for cyber when i contacted him and i said oh this is uh william law mr cyber and uh and he was uh his voice was like hostile and i heard him go yeah and i said remember you said last week if i contacted you that you would uh that you would answer a list of questions that I had for you. And he said, well, you know what? I've, I've done these notes. They're all, it's all in the, the 302s. I don't know what else I can tell you. He said, I'm, I'm going to be answering questions about this till I'm 90 years old. He said, look, I know that you're interested in this thing, but you'll just have to wait till all the, all the documents are released, and then you'll know. And I was really shocked by this. So mm-hmm. I knew what had happened. You know, So I put the phone down. I immediately called uh, I immediately called O'Neill and started to go into my spiel, and he said, I've, discuss- I've decided not to discuss the matter further. Mm. And so um, I did get to ask Cybert a couple of questions before I hung up. Let me backtrack a little bit. And I said, well, can I just ask you a couple of questions, you know? Um, and there was no answer. So I said, did the, did the president's body look the same as what you remembered from the autopsy photographs? And Cybert had said, well, the body looked cleaner than what I remembered. I, d- I don't remember it being that clean when I saw it. And he said it was probably taken further along in the autopsy. Um, and I said, well, no, sir, as far as we know, all the pictures were taken at the beginning of the autopsy. Now, this this really closed the gate. This really shut him down. And so that's when I hung up from him. And then I got on the phone with Frank O'Neill and, and uh, said, I've decided not to discuss the matter further. I said, well, can I just ask you a couple of questions? And he said, well, I told you I've decided not to discuss the matter further, but go ahead. <laughs> so even though he was he was mm-hmm. a bit clipped, he said, go ahead. So... I said, did the body look like what you remembered? The pictures of the body look like what you remembered. And so he said, some of them did, some of them didn't. Mm. And I pushed it, and I said, did the body look like what you remembered? And he said, no. 
Mm, well, then I, I had used up my question, so mm-hmm. I stuttered and said, thank you very much, Mr. O'Neill. And then I went, I hung up, and that was it. Um, and I went and continued to do interviews and work on the book. Mm-hmm. Just before I thought I had it ready for publication, I decided to myself, I've got to try to see if I can get to these guys. And to, so I can tell everybody that reads this that I've given it the best shot I can give it. So I decided to... Um, to try it again, and so I called uh, Frank O'Neill, and I, I gave him the same spill, told him who I was, didn't change anything, told him I wanted to do this project, and he didn't remember me. As a matter of fact, he seemed a little bit glad to hear from me, and started talking to me about, you never know what you're going to get when you interview no, somebody, you try to get I them know. to give you an interview. You can go back in a, two weeks, and, and they're friendly or they're hostile or whatever, so mm-hmm. he didn't remember me, so I started asking him these questions, and, and he answered them, and he was very good about the whole thing, and and I got to ask him, you don't think there was any conspiracy to kill Kennedy? He said, no, nah, there was no conspiracy. I come up with this little plan. I had finished the manuscript, and in this, the Custer chapter, the, he had mentioned that Cybert and O'Neill were with him on a couple of occasions when he went to, to do these x-rays and That's, take yeah. them up and, yeah. and, and develop them. And he said, no, that didn't happen. The guy, you know, is sick. He doesn't know what's going on. That, that didn't happen. We So... He did answer those questions. I came up with that plan of, you know, I've got this guy. I'm about to publish this book. He mentioned you. Could you clear this up for me? So I used that as a catalyst to get inside as an excuse to ask him questions. And every couple of three weeks, I'd call him up, and I would just ask him questions. And he he was always nice enough to answer them. And I sent him some documents that he wanted. And so then at the end, I was just able to, to ask whatever I wanted. And after I was finished with, with O'Neill, I did the same thing with Jim Seibert. And I called him up. He didn't remember me. So I was able to ask. Mm-hmm. I used the same thing. I said, I've got what you mentioned mm-hmm. in this chapter. I'd like you to verify this. So I just started asking questions. Very friendly. He seemed to be very knowledgeable on on uh, the assassination. I later learned that he had read a lot of books on it. Um, and I just started asking him questions. I'd find a reason to talk to him every couple of weeks. And, and then I started sending him little books. I sent him mm-hmm. uh, Jim Fetzer's Assassination mm-hmm. Science and Murder in Dealey Plaza. Mm-hmm. And I came home one night to say to hear that somebody's been calling you, uh, Jim Seibert, and uh, to say thank you. So the next day I called him up and I, I said, I see you got the books. And he said, I wasn't expecting anything like that. Good mm-hmm. night. And so we we started talking about the books and how much he enjoyed them and, and talking about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And through our conversations, you know, I knew this was probably going to be the last time I was going to get to ask questions. This had been going on for a while now. And I said to him, you know, I really want to write a profile about you, but it's really hard to do that if I haven't met the person. Now, he had turned everybody away from his doorstep. You know, even Vincent mm-hmm. Bulios, he had tried to meet with him, and he, he wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I, I, this was my chance. So, so I, you charmed him, did you, William? Well, I tried my best. You know, I, I knew that he had turned all these people down, and yeah. so I wanted to try to get as close as I could. Uh-huh. So, so I, after I sent him the books and we were talking about it, I knew this was probably going to be it. So I just took a breath and I held my breath and I said, you know, Mr. Seibert, I, I'm going to be down in your area because there's other people I want to interview, which is true. Hostie was down there. James Hostie mm-hmm. uh, was down in his area. And I said, if I can manage to get down there sometime, could I come in and talk to you about this? And I heard him, I held my breath, and I heard him go, no, and I thought, oh, I've blown it. This is it. And then I heard him go, no, I wouldn't mind. So there's my opening to go to go see him. So I immediately got a reservation, got a plane, 
and I arranged to take Deborah Conway with me. Mm-hmm. And we flew down there, and it's in the book. It sure uh, is. It's great. Meeting Seibert mm-hmm. and uh, being in his home. And he, when he came to pick us up, I'm, I'm trying to get along here because I know we've been at this for some time. We don't have as much time as I'd like to tell you the whole story. But we got ten minutes. Uh, he introduces me to his wife, and we're in the back of his car, and he's taking us to get our rental car so that we can go to his office at his home and, and do an interview. And I'm wondering to myself, how the hell am I going to bring this up about the brain? You know, this was a there a brain? Story. Wasn't there a brain? Mm-hmm. How am I going to bring this up? And his wife mm-hmm. looks back at me, God bless her, and she says, <laughs> I said, you know, Mr. Seibert, I'm so glad that you're here because you actually had your, you know, you saw the body of the president. You can tell me so much. And I said, um, his wife turns to me and she says, well, you know, his brains were all blown out of his head. Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. Well, she's obviously mm-hmm. heard this from Jim. He went home from the autopsy and said, guess what? I saw John F. Kennedy and he, he didn't have any brains in his head when we saw him. Mm-hmm. And so here she gives it to me. You know, and I said, well, that was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask. That yeah. ice is broken now. We, yeah. we get into to his office and I had this little plan of how I was going to go into this spiel about can I put this camcorder on you? I brought this little camcorder in a bag. Didn't bring a lot of equipment, just this little bitty camcorder. And I thought I was going to have to go through this big, long spiel. And I said, Mr. Seibert, would you, I don't think I can write fast enough to, to get all that you're going to say. Would you mind if I camcord this? And if he wasn't going to, he was going to say no, then I had another option I was going to use. And he said, no, nah, go right ahead. Nice. So now I can put the camera on him. And I did. And we stayed there. I think we were there the first time for like 12 hours. Whoa. Took us to dinner, That's took us true, to lunch, right? took us to That's dinner. Yeah. It was a wonderful experience. He he was a wonderful person, full of uh, full of laughter. There was one time we were at the table having uh, lunch or dinner, and uh-huh. his wife says, "You know, Jim's always been sort of a jokester." And I looked right at him, and he was looking right at me, and his eyes were literally sparkling. You know, oh, and that's, that's nice. what this whole thing has been for me is to uh-huh. try to meet these people of history and try to write about the experience of being that close to somebody that was, was involved in this event mm-hmm. that meant so much to our country. And I'm, I'm very proud of that interview. All the interviews, because like you said before, you never brought your own biases into it. You just let the people talk. And that comes across, and you make people, when they read the book, make up their own mind. And I think that's instrumental in the quality of, of your interviews. Uh, I hope I'm coming across and saying the right words, but I think that comes across, and and you can actually get a feel of these characters in the book, um, their articulations and things of that sort. So yeah. I congratulate you on that. I think you've achieved what you set out to accomplish. Well, thank you. And, you know, that's what I hear from people all over the place mm-hmm. uh, that say, you know, I really like the way you did this. I, I really feel that I was right there with yes, you. Yes, I've gotten yes, that yes. a number of times. I had a, a little housewife in Idaho call me up and say, I was right there with you. I just I felt like I was right in the room. Every writer should get that kind of call because that was my job. I felt if I can put it out there, if I can put my emotion into it and and transfer to the person that's going to read this, my emotion and their emotion, then I've done my job. And apparently Mm -hmm. I've done my job because that's what I get from people. That's what they like about the book the most. I don't put my own theories in it. Mm -hmm. I let people tell the story. I am not the story. Paul O'Connor told me once, he said, Mm -hmm. you know, when people interview me, they don't want to hear my voice. They want to hear their voice. And I've always kept that in my mind when I'm doing an interview, to let them have the voice. Let them talk. Let them be the story. 
And he said to me, it's, it's okay to tell our story, but don't be so cold and dry about it. You know, mm-hmm. let us tell the story. And, and so that's what I do. I've always kept that in my head to, to let those people tell the story and stay out of the way as much as I can. That's exactly what I try to do, even with your interview tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've done your job as well. Oh, thank you. It's funny because you were talking about your book and stuff, and when I was reading it, I think it was Siebert, well, several times in the book. I can't recall exactly the particulars, but um, when you were asking questions, I was saying to myself, oh, you should ask this question now, and sure enough, the very next question, bang, was right there. <laughs> So that was really cool. That was well, you know, really I had cool. forgotten to, to write any notes. I, I didn't write any notes about anything. I went in there cold, but I had read so much and read so much and uh-huh. read so much. And, and Deborah had, had a pad full of stuff of the questions I should ask, but she had it. I didn't have it. And, and I said, it's okay, Deb. I know this stuff. Let's do it. You know? And we sat down and did it. And, uh, it was, it was a great experience. Just, Mm-hmm. Fantastic. You know, how I met McClellan was I was just walking yeah. down uh, the hallway to go to the, to the to the conference room there. And here comes Deborah Conway. And I, I thought, well, she's got this guy with this little guy with her, and he looks a lot like Robert McClellan. And it was. And she said, William, I've got to run over here and do this. Could you please take the doctor and get him a drink? Yeah, hurt me. And sure I'm like, I will. Yeah. well, of course I will. Yeah, and no so problem. I took him there. And then people, people started looking and going, hey, that's Dr. McClellan. And they started gathering, as they always do. If, if you're with a witness, mm-hmm. um, they start gathering. And before you know it, you've got a good-sized crowd. It, I took Paul O'Connor and Dennis David one year to, to the conference, and it was like being with Elvis, you know? Mm. It was like I would just sit back and bask in it all and watch people <laughs> and, and how they were reacting. Colonel Parker, yeah. Yeah, to, to, being, to being able to ask these people questions. And it was really something to see. Mm. The interest in this is enormous, enormous. It is. It really is. I have a my book was being used, and at this point still is, in uh, at Slippery Rock College as part of a course. Oh, is it being taught on the assassination? Wow! And I was told by the professor there that if if I can get somebody to come in and talk about this, I can fill the room with at least four hundred people and maybe more. Wow! Yeah. So the so the interest is there. I mean, people want to know. They Absolutely. want truth in the in the history. They want the truth, and it goes beyond patriotism. I have to give all the researchers credit because, by and large, you guys are individuals. You're not part of any kind of government agency or anything or any conglomerate. You do it all out of your own love for patriotism, for the truth, the love of the truth, which is what democracy is built on. I'm going to include Canada in that, too, because this is what we're all after. It's the government of the people for the people, and we are the government. And when somebody lies to us, it's our neighbor lying to us, and this is what's taken place in the JFK assassination. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's essential that the truth finally come out and be revealed, and perhaps now that we have a different... I hope a different change of government. Let's hope for a different direction in well, Washington maybe. now. I hope so. Are we close to the end here? I was just going to say, I'm going to wrap up because there's a few people I want to thank, and okay. uh, you are one of them, my friend. Let uh, me just read this, sure, go this, ahead. this small thing by Jim Jenkins, how he ended his interview. Okay. This, I, I asked him about this, about thank, be grateful, you know, thankful that we're not 
all, you know, the way of historians. And he said, mm-hmm. well, we're a very small minority. History is written by historians. Mm-hmm. So I think this is going to be written into history by historians who take the easiest route, which is the perspective of all the Warren Commission and so forth. And my feeling is that it's a real shame because that's not valid. I've been asked why would the government want to do this. I think at this point in time, the credibility factor is important for the government, especially today. So I think the government covered it up for whatever reason. If you go with Lyndon Johnson, it was for the good of the people because they couldn't handle it, which I don't believe. I believe the people, if you get angry about something, that's well and good. There's something to get angry about. If you force the government to do something about it and you do it, as a people, then that's what the government should do. Those types of decisions should not be made for the people, the general populace. They should be presented for the people, and the people should make their own judgments. And I don't think that has ever happened. And being pessimistic, I don't think it ever will. I think it will have white cream that will always surface to the top, eventually. What is it, Gandhi? I hope you're right. Uh, what is it, Gandhi said? I'm going to paraphrase. There's been tyrants, and uh, if you think about it, always they always fall. That's a bad paraphrase or bad quoting on my part, but that's basically the idea behind it. And that's something I've lived by all my life, the hope for truth. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been phenomenal. The whole series has been fantastic. And to end it on such a high note with the interview with you is uh, just puts cherry on the cake. Uh, well, th- I thank you very much. Thank you, William. great. And keep the spring open. <laughs> Will do, my friend. Okay, you have a great night, and thanks again. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We have been speaking with William Matson Law, and we have been discussing his terrific book, In the Eye of History, Disclosures in the JFK Assassination Medical Evidence. And we have been disclosing them. What a fantastic guy. Uh, you know, all these researchers, like I said, they're all private citizens, and they do this out of love of country, love of patriotism, and love for the truth and freedom. It has been one heck of a ride the past month. It's been fantastic, and I want to thank CKLU, in particular Deborah Frankel and Carrie, for supporting me and letting me have all these long-distance phone calls. I also want to thank JFK Lancer. That's www.jfklancer.com. All my guests, uh, Larry Hancock, Sherry Feaster. Then we had Abraham Bolden, Larry Hancock again. Then we had Len Osanic last week and Jim DiEugenio. And this afternoon we had Dick Russell. And we just finished off with William Law. All the books can be got at jfklancer.com or you can go to Chapters and get them all right on the King's Way here. Most of all, I want to thank my honey. Honey, thank you so much for putting up with me for the past two months because actually it started in September. I started uh, trying to get guests to put this together. I've been reading like crazy trying to put all this together. Upwards of 30 hours a week reading and doing research, putting commercials together, posters, putting posters up. You have been fantastic and supportive through it all. It has been a dream for me for years to do something like this on radio and uh, the dream has come true. I want to thank everybody for listening and those that have emailed me. I want to thank you. All your emails have been greatly appreciated. It keeps me going, that's for sure. I'm a volunteer here, and I make zero dollars off this, but it's not the messenger that's important. It is indeed the message. And Night Freight will continue next week. Night Freight's been a real treat, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Brent Holland from Night Freight. I'll see you next week. 
Night Fright. Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 